Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. Before we get into it, I just want to remind you guys that uh, I now have a Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash disastroushistory, and if you join in the next five days from the release date of this episode, which is October 21st, 2021, uh, you will receive a sticker, free sticker. Um, they're super cool. Um, I, I'm a little biased because it's my logo, and my wife made the logo, So, but they're really cool stickers. You get a free one. Uh, regardless of what level you join on, there's $3, $5, $3, $7, and $15. So, yeah, this is probably the last time I put the Patreon uh, pitch at the front of the episode. It'll be at the end along with everything else from now on. Just wanted to remind you guys that there is the uh, free sticker um, offer if you sign up now. With that out of the way, let's talk about the episode. So today we're going to cover a new type of disaster. Well, it's not new, but it's new to us. Today we're going to talk all about Hurricane Rita that struck in September of 2005. But wait, I can hear you saying, wasn't that after Hurricane Katrina? And Katrina was a massive disaster, why don't you talk about that? Well, the truth is, I probably will eventually. It's too big of a disaster to ignore for that long. But Katrina gets talked about constantly. Rita, which was literally less than a month later and technically stronger than Katrina, gets basically ignored. And it's true, Katrina would be recorded as the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean at that time, for a month before Hurricane Rita smashed that record. And then the Atlantic Ocean record would begin broken like a month later by Hurricane Wilma, but we will get into all that. First, since this is a new disaster, we need to get into the depressing formation of hurricanes. Yes, that is a pun. No, I will not apologize. So, we're going to start with when hurricane season is. It's basically from the beginning of June until the end of November. This is the time period when ocean temperatures are at their highest and the area is ripe for hurricane formation. To form a hurricane, you need two main ingredients. Number one, you need warm water temperature generally above about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. If you don't have warm water, you don't have a hurricane. That warm water is what helps feed the hurricane the energy it needs to continue to spin and grow. The second thing you need is a cluster of thunderstorms. You'll occasionally hear them referred to as tropical waves. Now I know a lot of people hear tropical wave and think like an actual wave in the ocean. I will fully admit that is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of it. But that's not what this is. This is an area of low pressure in the atmosphere, like basically a wave in the atmosphere. Basically, this wave is situa situated north-south and travels westward across the Atlantic Ocean. This low pressure starts, kind of shockingly, as far away as northwest India. Basically, the low pressure that occasionally turns into the hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean gets pushed off from the Indian monsoon high-pressure areas and travels all the way across Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Libya and Algeria and goes off into the Atlantic Ocean. This is where it really picks up steam to become a hurricane, or not. But there's more that goes into it. Obviously, we need the warm water to grow, but its location latitudinally really determines whether it can get the spin it needs to grow into a hurricane. If it's too far north, 
Well, the water isn't warm enough there, so that cuts that off. If it is too close to the equator as it comes off the African coast, well, there isn't enough of the Coriolis effect to impact the storms and get them to start spinning around a central spot. Wait, 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 I can hear you saying. What in the world is the Coriolis effect? I'm going to do my best to explain this in as simple terms as possible, so bear with me because it is kind of complicated and confusing and we're going to do our best to break it down. First of all, different parts of the Earth travel at different speeds. So, everywhere takes 24 hours to rotate, right? Everywhere on the Earth has the same day. No matter where you are, it's 24 hours. But if you're standing, say, 10 feet from the North Pole, your rotation for a day is going to be a circle with a circumference of basically 63 feet. So the radius is 10 feet times 2 times pi is basically 62.83, but for ease of math, we're going to round to 63. It's going to take you 24 hours to travel 63 feet around the pole to end up in the same relative position. So you have to travel. It's going to take you 24 hours if you're standing on one end to rotate all the way around the pole to the same relative position you were in at the start of that 24 hours. So if you're standing 10 feet from the North Pole, you are traveling at a whopping 5 ten thousandths of a mile per hour. That's slow, like super duper slow. Now if you're standing at the equator, you will return to the same relative position in 24 hours, except you travel, oh, I don't know, something like 25,000 miles because you're going around the entirety of the circumference of the Earth rather than that 10 feet at the North Pole. Which means that at the equator, you're moving at about 1,040 miles per hour compared to that 5 ten thousandths of a mile per hour at the North Pole because you're traveling significantly farther in a, the exact same amount of time than you are if you were standing 10 feet from the North Pole. Hopefully I explained that well. So what does this have to do with Coriolis effect? So the best way I can think to describe this is imagine you have a piece of paper. You stick the pen in the middle of the paper. Then what you do is you put a ruler straight up and down on that piece of paper, touching your pen. Then with one hand, you take that paper and you spin it counterclockwise and you pull your pen down at the same time. So you're spinning and drawing with your pen at the same time. When you remove that ruler to look at your paper, instead of having a straight line, you're going to have a curved arc. If you do the same thing in the opposite direction, you get a curved line the opposite way. Basically, the different areas of the paper are moving at slightly different speeds as they rotate, causing the line to become curved as it gets to a faster moving portion of the paper. The middle of the paper is moving the least amount of space, the edges of the paper are moving a bigger circumference space. So it's all moving the same, it's all moving the same distance at the same time, but they're moving at different speeds because they are at different locations on the paper. This is what is happening on Earth. In the northern hemisphere, things spin counterclockwise. In the southern hemisphere, they start to move clockwise. Now that's a whole lot of words about the Coriolis effect, but what does it have to do with hurricanes? These tropical waves are systems of low pressure, right? So what happens when you have low pressure? Air flows from the area of higher pressure to the area of lower pressure in order to balance it out. 
Because this area is so large, the Coriolis effect happens and the air gets pushed to the right as it flows into the low pressure area because it can't move in a straight line because of the rotation of the Earth. So it just, as the air moves in, it starts to curve to the right because it's not going to move in a straight line because of the Coriolis effect. So that's how you get these thunderstorms that start to spin because they're trying to move in a straight line towards that low pressure. But because this is such a big area, it's being drawn to the right. So it's starting to spin in all directions in a counterclockwise fashion. So as this tropical wave hits the ocean and you have this area of low pressure that's drawing air in and creating thunderstorms, it's drawing up this hot, humid air out of the ocean and create these thunderstorms that begin to spin, sometimes these thunderstorms will start to conglomerate into a very large storm somewhat kind of spinning around a central column. As this begins to spin, more warm air is drawn up into the column and begins to disperse out away because the top of the thunderstorm has become a high-pressure area. So when you have a high-pressure area, it starts to push air out away from that high-pressure area to even out. So it begins to move away. As it gets higher, the air cools, drops back down to surface level, because the air is being drawn up away from the surface of the ocean at the bottom of the column, that creates a low-pressure area. So you have a low-pressure area at the bottom of the column in the center of all these spinning thunderstorms. You have a high-pressure area at the top of the column in the center. And so as it draws air up, it pushes it out, it falls back down to the surface, then draws back into the middle, and it just is a feedback loop, continuously drawing warm air in, cooling it off the top, pushing it out away, dropping it back down, warming up again, then being drawn back in. Eventually, this all conglomerates into one big, giant, spinning, self-feeding storm. And once it hits about, once the winds inside reach about 25 miles per hour, it becomes known as a tropical depression. It is important to note that it doesn't technically have an eye at this point. It's just a loose collection of thunderstorms that are vaguely moving in a kind of similar direction and also kind of spinning in the vaguely similar kind of direction. It's like a group of drunk college students on a bar crawl. Everyone's kind of moving in the same way, but they're not quite an organized group yet that have an actual purpose. So once this process continues and the wind speeds increase, the storm will start to form an eye that calm area of low pressure that hurricanes are known for. Once the wind inside this storm system reaches about 39 per miles per hour sustained, the storm will gain a name and become a tropical storm. The wind direction for hurricanes in the northern hemisphere is west to east, and it's east to west in the southern hemisphere. Then, the storm just continuously feeds itself on warm air coming off the ocean until it reaches wind speeds of 74 miles per hour, where it officially becomes a Category 1 hurricane. Category 1 hurricanes are wind speeds from 74 to 95 miles per hour. Category 2 is 96 to 110. Category 3 is 111 to 129. Category 4 is 130 to 156. And Category 5 is anything over 157 miles per hour sustained winds. That scale that I just read off is known as the Saffir-Simpson scale. Each category more or less refers to the level of damage that can be expected from the storm. So that's kind of how a hurricane forms. Now, there's one thing that 
routinely comes up with hurricanes, especially if you watch the news or the Weather Channel or whatever, you follow people on Twitter or social media or whatever, they will talk about pressure, a pressure reading for this hurricane. Oh, this hurricane has such a low pressure reading, it's super strong. What is that pressure reading? It's always something like 900-something MB. That MB stands for millibars and is the measure of the amount of atmospheric force exerted on one square meter of the Earth's surface. It's the barometric pressure, basically. When the barometric pressure drops, air and water vapor is able to rise easier, continuing to feed the storm. Because the eye is the lowest pressure of the entire hurricane, because if it wasn't, the storm wouldn't rotate, we measure the barometric pressure there. The normal barometric pressure at sea level is 1,013.2 millibars. If you're looking at a storm's pressure, say it's at 957, and it starts to drop lower, so if you look like 3-4 hours later and it's at 930, that storm is building and getting stronger. If it starts to go higher, so let's say you're looking at it and it, it was at 930, and then you look back, five, six hours later, and it's at 960. That storm is weakening and restructuring. The lower the pressure, the stronger the storm, basically. So then why do Atlantic hurricanes always seem to move in one direction? Well, that is what that is caused by what are known as trade winds. Basically, trade winds are winds around the equator that blow from east to west and push the hurricanes up into the Atlantic, onto the eastern seaboard, the Gulf of Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean regularly gets crushed by hurricanes all the time. So once it gets farther up away from the equator and out of those trade winds, it can. that's how you get some of those hurricanes that spin off into the Atlantic and dissipate without hitting land at all. That's how you get them that push up into Cuba and Florida and Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi. And then you get some that go up and hit you know, farther up the East Coast, like Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey and stuff like that. It's from those trade winds pushing it up that direction. Once it gets out of those trade winds, it tends to be at the whims of whatever winds are blowing. So that's the basis of how, why, where, and what a hurricane is, how it forms, that kind of stuff. So with that, let's get into this. It is the year 2005. The United States had just seen an extremely active hurricane season in 2004, and there were predictions for another extremely busy one in 2005. There were several groups that do hurricane predictions for the next hurricane season that year. Colorado State University, a group called Tropical Storm Risk, and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a.k.a. NOAA. They all made different predictions to start up the season in 2005, and these are their first predictions of the year. Many of them changed their predictions later, but I'm just going to go with the very first set. And I'm going to be entirely honest with you, they were very bad at predicting 2005. Like, I know that predicting the weather is hard, but these were not good. I, they, these are not good. Not e like, not even close. I'm going to give you the first predictions for each organization for the year, then at the end, the actual numbers for 2005. So on December 3rd, 2004, Colorado State University predicted that there would be 11 total named storms, 6 would reach hurricane status, and 3 would be major hurricanes. For quick reference, a major hurricane is Category 3 and above. 
On December 10th, 2004, Tropical Storm Risk predicted that there would be 10 total named storms, 6 would reach hurricane status, and 3 would be major hurricanes. NOAA would be cowardly and give a range of storms rather than a solid number. They predicted on May 16, 2005 that there would be 12 to 15 named storms, 7 to 9 would reach hurricane status, and 3 to 5 would be major hurricanes. Remember that. They're basically predicting three major hurricanes, six or seven hurricane status storms, and then, you know, 15, 12 to 15-ish named storms. So that's tropical storms and hurricanes total. So are you ready for the actual numbers? In 2005, there were 27 named storms. 15 of those were hurricanes, and seven would be major hurricanes. Remember, major hurricanes are Category 3 and above. And this is a good time to explain that there is a set number of names given for hurricanes in a year. That number is 21. When they run out of names, they switch to the Greek alphabet. In 2005, they got to the Greek letter Zeta. That is the sixth Greek letter. By the time September rolled around, there had already been four major hurricanes, two of which reached Category 5. One of those was Hurricane Katrina, which rightfully gets a ton of attention because of the absolute abject failure of FEMA to respond in any competent way, not only in New Orleans, but it also in Biloxi, and all over Mississippi, and all over the rest of Louisiana. FEMA's response to Katrina was... Well, it was catastrophic. The hurricane was catastrophic, their disaster response was, in fact, catastrophic. FEMA is not going to look good throughout this episode, just so you're aware. But we're not talking about Katrina. We're going to talk about Hurricane Rita, the middle finger to Louisiana a month after Hurricane Katrina. What would become Hurricane Rita emerged off the West African coast on September 7, 2005 as a tropical wave. It traveled west into the Atlantic Ocean and just could not quite get its life together to actually organize into something dangerous, so the National Hurricane Center straight up stopped tracking it. Eventually, it actually got itself pulled together enough to appear as an actual threat somewhere northeast of Puerto Rico, uh, right around September 17th or so. Then, on September 18th, the National Hurricane Center recognized that it had gotten itself picked up and put together enough to call it Depression 18 of the 2005 season. Which is right around the age most people start to feel a little depressed, so we're not going to judge too harshly. At this point, the storm was straight north of the, from the Dominican Republic and headed straight at Turks and Caicos. The wind speeds were sitting right at 28 miles per hour, and the pressure was right around 1,009 millibars. That would change soon. Literally just 18 hours later, the storm would move about 150 miles west-northwest, sitting just north of Turks and Caicos, and would strengthen to a tropical storm and officially be named Rita. Just a few hours before Rita officially received its name, a tropical storm warning for the southeast and central Bahamas, including the Turk and Caicos, was issued. At that same time, 11 a.m. on September 18th, a hurricane watch was issued for the northwest Bahamas. It would not be the last. And then, it just kind of sat. 
There was some wind shear blowing into the storm that was preventing it from strengthening too rapidly. Wind shear is basically different wind speeds and directions. We talked about it a lot in some of the tornado episodes. Wind shear pushes away the heat and moisture from the hurricane, or in this case, Tropical Storm Center, preventing them from strengthening. This is what happened to Tropical Storm Rita. From the time it was named a tropical storm on September 18th to early morning or so on September 20th, 2005. Finally, on the morning of the 20th, Rita reached hurricane status about 100 or so miles east of Key West, Florida. The wind speeds at that time were about 80 miles per hour sustained. A nice Category 1 hurricane. It was at this point that Rita was done playing with wind shear. It all but faded and she decided, yeah, let's break some records. By the afternoon of September 20th, Rita was a Category 2 hurricane barreling west about 40 miles south of Key West. And from that point on, there was no looking back. Early morning on September 21st, Rita was a Category 3 hurricane with wind speeds pushing 110 miles per hour. About 12 hours later, Rita's wind speeds were at 166 miles per hour sustained. This thing was a massive Category 5 hurricane. After screwing around sitting at tropical storm strength for almost a whole day, Rita went from a paltry tropical storm to an absolutely rip-roaring Category 5 hurricane in 36 hours. At its absolute most intense, Rita had sustained winds of 180 miles per hour with a barometric pressure of 895 millibars. It was the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico. You know where Rita was headed? That's right, right at Louisiana, which you might remember was already in ruins from the previous month when the last massive record-setting hurricane had come barreling through Hurricane Katrina. As we all know, Katrina caused massive damage throughout Louisiana, but especially in New Orleans and Biloxi, Mississippi. The levees in New Orleans and throughout Louisiana were overtopped and destroyed during Katrina. The hurriedly rebuilt levees never stood a chance. In the days before landfall, evacuations began in massive numbers. Early landfall estimates put it somewhere between Houston and New Orleans of where the hurricane would make landfall. So everyone from Galveston, which is, you know, just south of, southeast, actually, of Houston, all of Houston, a huge portion of Texas, and large portions of Louisiana began to evacuate. The official numbers estimate that it was somewhere between 2.5 and 3.7 million people in total attempting to evacuate. This was not a well-organized evacuation. People sat on highways trying to escape the Houston area for literally, and I mean literally, days. It wasn't uncommon to spend 12 hours in the car to go barely 12 miles. Cars ran out of gas on the interstates and were just left abandoned. People would pull out blankets out of their cars and take naps in the median, knowing full well the traffic wouldn't move while they were sleeping. Most people leaving Houston and the Galveston area attempted to make it to Dallas or Austin or San Antonio via I-10 or I-45. Unfortunately, in a less-than-shocking turn of events, the state of Texas did not plan for this very well. I know, shocking that Texas would not plan well for a natural disaster. They only had people evacuating one way, 
it would take hours upon hours for them to turn the inbound lanes toward Houston into outbound lanes to help with the traffic congestion. And even when they did make this decision, it leaked early over the radios. So people decided, instead of just continuing to sit in traffic, they hopped in their cars and hopped the median as cars were still coming the other direction down I-10 and I-45. But it wasn't just sitting in traffic. Sometimes, if you waited too long to evacuate and you didn't have any gas, no gas stations near you actually had any gas to fill up your car. There were numerous instances of people on the interstate running out of gas and having to call the National Guard to fill their vehicle up, sitting in 100 degree heat in South Texas. Thousands upon thousands that would have evacuated just said to hell with it and turned around and went back home because there was no point in being stuck in your car if you're going to get hit by a hurricane. May as well be in your house. In one of the more horrifying events during the evacuation, a bus carrying nursing home residents caught on fire outside of Dallas, Texas. On board were 38 residents of the nursing home and six staff members. Only 14 people would make it off that bus alive. 24 people burned to death when the rear axle overheated and ignited the tire and flammable material in the wheel well. The International Space Station was controlled by Johnson Space Center in Houston. It was forced to be evacuated and control of the space station was given to Russian flight control outside of Moscow. But let's say you got lucky and you did find the one road that was actually moving and going somewhere. It only took you six hours to go 200 or whatever miles. Good luck finding somewhere to actually stay. Hotels all the way up into Oklahoma and Arkansas were booked solid. There were no vacancies anywhere. So even if you did manage to evacuate and did get somewhere, you may end up sleeping in your car anyway because there weren't any hotels available. If you didn't have any family members that didn't live in the area that weren't also evacuating, you were out of luck. You were sleeping in your car wondering if you were going to have a house to go back to, and wondering how long you were going to end up sleeping in your car. Luckily for everyone, Rita eventually hit some cooler continental waters, basically the waters that are directly off the coast in the Gulf of Mexico, had some wind shear, and basically had an eye replacement cycle, which caused Rita to weaken down to a Category 3 hurricane at landfall, on Saturday, September 24th, 2005, at about 2.40 a.m. The eye made landfall in extreme southwestern Louisiana between Johnson's Bayou and Sabine Pass. At landfall, wind speeds were 115 miles per hour sustained, with gusts well above that. The storm surge at landfall was 15 feet, which, just to make sure I explain it, means the actual ocean level was 15 feet above where it normally is. So if you're standing on the ocean, I'm 6 feet 3 inches tall. The water at the highest point, which was a huge chunk of Louisiana, was basically 9 feet above my head. This massive storm surge up and down the coast of Louisiana inundated the entire area with water. The ninth Ward New Orleans, which was famous during Katrina, was flooded yet again with water. The floodwaters from Katrina had barely receded. People had barely started to pick up the pieces of their lives when Hurricane Rita decided to flip them a giant middle finger yet again. 
all up and down the Louisiana and Texas coastline, the storm was destroying homes. Transformers began to explode in the wind, sending sparks flying everywhere. Roofs were torn off in the 100-plus-mile-per-hour wind. Trees everywhere were uprooted and tossed aside like they were nothing. The storm surge moved at least 50 miles inland, well past the town of Lake Charles, which was flooded by this hurricane. This storm was huge. It packed a massive wallop, but it was pretty quickly forgotten about. Sure, New Orleans got some storm surge, but not really anything that did anything that wasn't already damaged beyond recognition from Katrina. No, this storm hit rural Louisiana. This was just as bad as Katrina or any other major hurricane, but it was quickly overshadowed by the recovery in New Orleans. Rita didn't hit a major city. It mused Houston and Galveston and New Orleans, but entire towns and parishes in southwestern Louisiana were inundated with water and destroyed by the massive winds. Entire towns were completely underwater. They were completely blown away. But these weren't big towns. They're the small, couple hundred people max towns. The ones that don't make for good images on the news. Not with the giant, historically important city of New Orleans just down the road, absolutely devastated in FEMA, absolutely fumbling that response. Throughout southern Louisiana, rice fields were destroyed. When the levees around the fields were overtopped by seawater, the water had nowhere to go as everything receded. That means that as the floodwaters evaporated, the salt stayed behind and killed growth for at least a couple growing seasons. Farmers couldn't get to the levees to break them down so the water could get out. The roads were blocked off by trees downed everywhere, or houses blown over, or whatever debris was in the way. So, they literally had salted fields. It was also right before the sugarcane harvest, so a ton of that was also destroyed. Power was out for hundreds of thousands of people for weeks in Louisiana and Texas. Roads were blocked by debris from trees and houses and flooded. There were reports of people that had to sleep on the hoods of their cars because sleeping inside their cars was too hot. They had to wait in line for water. They had to wait in line for food. Numerous people reported sleeping with guns by their side every single night because there were rumors flying of people hearing generators going there and looting stuff. They were absolutely terrified, and the mosquitoes? It's southern Louisiana. It's a swamp. The mosquitoes were horrible. It was hot. It was humid. It was destroyed. There was no relief from anything. And because of where they were and how far out this area was, it was hard to get supplies out there. That's just how rural it was. And with FEMA already under the backlash of how they handled Katrina, they were busy trying to deal with that image catastrophe. They weren't getting out to these rural areas where there's only, you know, 40, 60, 100, 200 people when they've got thousands upon thousands of people in New Orleans who are still without power, that people were trapped, who still need food, things like that. The victims of Hurricane Rita kind of got forgotten about. In the end, only seven individuals died in the direct impact of the storm. One person died in Florida in rip currents caused by waves from Rita. One person died in a tornado in Isola, Mississippi. 
One person drowned in the storm surge in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Two people died when a tree blew onto their house in Hardin, Texas. One person died when a tree fell on their home in Point Blank, Texas. And another person died when a tree fell on them in Angelina County, Texas. Another 113 deaths would be attributed to the impact of the storm, but were not caused by the wind, rain, lightning, or storm surge. Like the bus fire I spoke of earlier, that is attributed to Hurricane Rita's death toll, but is not a direct cause of the storm. This was another reason that Hurricane Rita was often overlooked despite devastating much of Louisiana and Texas. 1,800 people died during Hurricane Katrina. There are the enduring images of people trapped on their roofs in New Orleans, signs painted on rooftops begging for help. It was easy to see and right there in your face. Rita was not that way. The people suffering were in hard-to-reach places. They were trapped in hours-long evacuation lines. There wasn't any deaths at all, but entire towns were completely swept away, obliterated by storm surge and insane winds. One of the suggestions to people who lived in these areas by the government was to just not move back, to abandon the lower-lying areas their families had lived in for years, to move out of these areas to places they knew no one and nothing. This was never a serious suggestion for the aftermath of Katrina. There was never going to be a chance someone would seriously suggest abandoning New Orleans. It's New Orleans. They were never going to say, hey... Don't move back to the French Quarter. Don't move back to the crown jewel of the South. Like, New Orleans is New Orleans. It's a world-renowned, internationally known and famous city. They were never going to say, way, we should abandon New Orleans. That is ridiculous. So why are they suggesting it to these other people? To these people who have lived in this area their entire lives, whose families have lived there for centuries. This is the area that Cajun comes out of. Cajun culture is huge in this part of Louisiana. The idea that they would suggest to these people who are very proud of where they come from that they should just not rebuild was utterly ridiculous. And because they refused this, it's likely that many of them didn't get as much of the help as they needed because they were being overshadowed, because they were being looked at as, well... If you don't want to deal with hurricanes, then don't live there. When that's definitely not what happened with New Orleans and Katrina. No one ever looked at New Orleans and said, well, if you didn't want to deal with hurricanes, just don't live there. That's ridiculous. Why should they abandon their homes? Why should they abandon the land their families have lived on? Where they've lived and breathed and had families and gone to school and worked and had dreams, and marriages, and parties, and gone to church, and gone, to just had entire lives. They've lived their entire lives in this area, have done all the fun things, gone through all the heartbreak, had died in this area. Why should they just abandon their homes when that would never be suggested for Houston, or New Orleans, or Galveston, or pretty much anywhere else? They shouldn't. But again, because they refused the suggestion, and I can't blame them, the recovery from Rita was largely ignored in favor of the grand rebuilding of Bourbon Street and the French Quarter and all of New Orleans from Katrina. But that doesn't mean that these areas just didn't recover. 
the areas that were hit by Rita, Lake Charles and Cameron Parish and, oh, God forgive me, Terrebonne, Terrebonne Parish and Vermilion Parish all would fight on. Many are still recovering a full 16 years after Rita. Many never recovered their pre-Rita populations. But the Cajun culture there is still going strong. Hurricane Rita would cause about $25 billion, yes, billion with a B, dollars worth of damage in 2021 dollars. The name Rita would be retired from the list of hurricane names, never to be used again. Hurricane Rita remains the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico. It has not been topped in the 16 years since it reached that Category 5 status. And it is still in the top 5 of strongest Atlantic hurricanes ever recorded. But because of where Hur Hurricane Rita made landfall, and when it made landfall, it's basically been forgotten by most major outlets. With Hurricane Katrina, just a month before, and Hurricane Wilma, a month afterwards, Rita falls into that weird area of awful, awful disaster that very rarely gets talked about. The parishes in southwestern Louisiana and eastern Texas took some really bad hits from Hurricane Rita. They were largely destroyed. Entire towns were wiped out. Yet, they rebuilt and they largely rebuilt without anybody really paying attention to it. And I think that really speaks to how strong the people of this area are and how willing they are to be able to deal with this terrible, terrible storm. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, history spelled without the vowel, so disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, also on Instagram, Disastrous History, and TikTok, also Disastrous History, all those spelled correctly. Um, TikTok videos are usually some smaller disasters that won't get an episode or can't get an episode because there's just not enough information to fill up the entire time. So, if you want to send me an email, my email is disastroushistory at gmail.com. And if you want to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or just let me know how I'm doing, if you have any suggestions for the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, as always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries. <laughs>